0: Church family, will you take your copy of God's word and turn with me to 1 Corinthians? We'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 11 this morning. We will take a break from our series in 1 Corinthians next Sunday uh, and consider a part of the Christmas story together. Uh, but for today, we continue here uh, in this uh, series through Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth. Uh, let me begin by uh, bringing you. Uh, Warm and very thankful greetings from Great Joy Bible Church, our daughter church in Kigali, uh, Rwanda. It's where I was last week. I was able to spend the week with the leaders of Great Joy on Saturday. I uh, was able to celebrate with them as they baptized eight new members into uh, Christ and into their congregation. Uh, it, was, it was six hours it took us to baptize eight people. They take baptism very seriously. Part of that was fellowship and eating, but about four hours of it was the service, okay? Um, so that was, that was fun. Um, it was, but it was the first time that they have done that entire process alone. Uh, hearing testimonies, uh, Pastor Carden bab- actually being the one to do the baptism, and so we celebrate that with them. And then I was able to be, last Sunday, able to preach twice in their morning and in their afternoon Uh, service. I am uh, incredibly encouraged by how the Lord has sustained them. Uh, It continues to uh, grow their numbers, to add to them, it seems like, nearly daily through the proclamation of the gospel. Uh, They are spreading out across that country. There are already new Bible studies that have begun, and it looks like the seeds of even the first church plant, out of great joy, in another city in Rwanda. So there is still much work ahead of us in that partnership. Uh, And one of the things I was looking for this last week in Rwanda was how will we continue this partnership in years to come? And the Lord seemingly has answered that for us. Uh, And so the logistics look like they will be in place for us to send multiple teams next year to continue our partnership with great joy, to continue to train them, but not only to train them, but to work alongside of them in gospel proclamation and disciple-making Uh, there in that country. So you continue to pray for uh, our partners and just know how much they love you, even though most of you they have never met, how grateful they are to you, uh, to our congregation for supporting them in their gospel work there in uh, Kigali. I invite you to stand with me now as we honor the reading of God's word. We're going to start in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, consider down through verse 11 this morning. This is the word of the Lord. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brothers go to law against brothers, and that before unbelievers have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you why not rather suffer wrong why not rather be defrauded but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God do not be deceived Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for the gathered body of saints that is Nansman River Baptist Church. I'd like to begin our time here in your word just by praying for our partners, the gathered body of saints that is Great Joy Bible Church in Kigali, Rwanda, seemingly a world away. But brothers and sisters who we are united with, not only in Christ, the bond of peace, but we are united with in common cause to see that city and that country bow the knee to Christ. To hear the gospel and believe. Thank you, God, for the work that you continue to do through them Thank you for allowing us to be a part of such a great work of the gospel. God, it is the gospel of which we have sung this morning and it is the gospel that unifies us together and it is the gospel of Jesus with which we can stand knowing that we, like this text said, have been washed and sanctified and justified, that it is our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God that we are right with you and that we are one together. Help us now as we come to your word which encourages us to act as one, to settle our conflicts as one, as those who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, we pray in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Church family, our sermon this morning is entitled Sanctified Conflict Resolution. My goal this morning isn't going to be to give you some steps towards resolving conflict within your home or your circles of influence, but to think about why the church, those who have been, as Paul ends this section, washed and sanctified and justified, Should solve our problems differently than the world does. We live in a lawsuit happy culture. I was shocked by this statistic, so much so that I had to look it up in multiple places to see if it was actually true. This year, an estimated 40 million lawsuits will be filed in the United States. Forty million this year alone, and to the best that I could tell, that that's not criminal proceedings. Criminal proceedings add maybe another sixty million on top of that. Can you? I can't even hardly wrap my mind around that statistic. Maybe you can look into it a little further and tell me how that's even possible. But that statistic is cited in multiple places. Now, some of you know this because I think I've talked about it before. My undergraduate degree, which seems uh, like a lifetime ago at this point, was in American government and law. I, at that point in my life, uh, was already desiring to serve the church in a pastoral role, but I needed to get an undergraduate degree in something, and so I went to a state Uh, university and majored in political science and uh, with a concentration in the law I thought it was interesting it was something I do the the college didn't have that uh, department didn't have an attendance policy and didn't require foreign languages so it was even better (laughs) and one of the classes that I took during that time was uh, a class called uh, the American judicial process and part of that class required, a good substantial part of that class, required us to go to court. And so our entire class, which was only about eight or ten of us, uh, would, would meet at least one or two days a week for the whole semester in, in court. We would, our professor would meet us at the federal court, which was uh, not all that far away. We, we went to the state court, we went to local courts, and we just would sit and watch. And then sometimes the judges would, would you know, meet us during lunch, we would interview, or we would talk to the attorneys. That, most of that has run together for me. Now, if you spent, have spent much time in court, you know it can, it can be both incredibly dull and incredibly entertaining, almost simultaneously. There are only really two of those lawsuits that really have stuck out in my mind. I want to tell you about one and why it stuck out to me then and why it still does all these years later that week, we were spending time in small claims court. Small claims court is where you go when you have a a minor beef with someone. And small claims court is, is not as formal as regular court. There is no jury. There's usually not even attorneys. Most of the time, it's kind of what you would see on TV with the people's court, although that's somewhat dramatized, right? It's a judge sitting down with Two parties trying to settle a dispute and the judge would then render a verdict. And we spent really that whole week in small claims court just watching one case after another. And I only remember one because it was one member of a church suing another. And it it gets worse. It it was the ex-wife of the worship leader of the church suing his new girlfriend, both of which were members of the church, and they had gotten into a fight in the building, and one had broken the other's glasses, and they had gone to small claims court over the amount of money that those glasses cost. I remember watching that trial take place. It did not last more than maybe... 30 minutes or so. And ultimately, the one who broke the other's glasses had to pay for them. But far worse damage was done over the course of that maybe half hour trial. After the case was over, my class went into a little meeting room and we had watched several court cases happen at that point. And we went in there to discuss with our professor and maybe the judge or an attorney, I don't remember. But I can remember distinctly sitting in that room i am I am fairly positive, full of lost people, listening to them discuss a case where one Christian was suing at least one person who named who claimed the name of christ was suing another person who claimed the name of Christ, and listening to how that affected how those students viewed Christianity. For me, that case was a stark illustration of what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. That conflicts within the church should be governed by our new life in Christ. How dare we? As People who claim to be brothers and sisters in the Lord go to pagan courts to solve our problems. Well, they were doing it in the first century, at least in Corinth they were, because it was one of the issues that had been reported back to Paul and that he was seeking to address And it still happens today. I don't know how many of those 40 million lawsuits that will be filed in the United States this year are amongst Christians, but I am quite certain that some of them are. Now, before we get into the exposition of the text, can can I just make something abundantly clear? Because I don't want you to hear me say something that I am not saying and something that the text is not saying. There is a difference between civil and criminal matters. And we're going to see in a little while from Romans chapter 13 that, that God has entrusted the state with the sword in criminal matters. Paul is not instructing the church to deal with matters of criminality. So let me just say clearly, I've said this before from this pulpit, and if the Lord gives me more years serving as pastor here, I will likely say it again. If you come here seeking to harm others, we will report you to the police and we will not feel bad about it. That the state, the police have investigative authority from God and that the government has the authority to punish those who have committed crimes, and we will not stand in their way just because you're a church member. Paul is addressing, this text is addressing civil matters, disputes. He calls it in verse 1, grievances. This is where we we have harmed one another, not in a criminal way, but that we have harmed one another in what we would call in our court system a civil way or in a civil manner, And it is that which we will consider this morning. Number one, rightly handling conflict within the church is an indication of the maturity of the church. So much of our series in 1 Corinthians has dealt with what does it mean to actually live and function as a part of a healthy church, a church that obeys the scripture, a church that has both, yes, mature, more mature and less mature Christians working together for the common cause of discipleship within the church, unified together. Unity was Paul's primary focus of chapters 1 through 4. And one of the things seemingly causing disunity within the church was not that there were conflicts amongst them, but how they were dealing with them. And so now that we've gotten to this section of Paul's letter that gives them instructions of how to deal with some of the actual issues that they are facing, like we saw in 1 Corinthians 5, uh, church discipline, like we're going to see later, sexual immorality, marriage, the Lord's Supper, all of these things that they were doing wrong. Here he addresses lawsuits among one another and, and, and how the church, how a local church goes about handling conflict, even significant conflict between members in the church is an indication of our maturity. When everybody's getting along, when everybody's on the same page, when everybody's agreeing, when nobody feels defrauded, when nobody feels taken advantage of, when nobody feels like they've done wrong, it's pretty easy to show up at church every week. It's pretty easy for us to, 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 to... present ourselves as unified in those cases but what happens when we feel wronged by a brother and sister in Christ what what happens when when we feel as if they, they they they've they've done us wrong to the point that that our culture would say well you should sue them that's that's what was happening here and Paul says the way that you handle this says a lot about who you are as a church let's look at some of these verses together Starting verse 1, when one of you has a grievance against another, and he asks this question, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world, and if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial, uh, trivial cases? Do you not know that... We are to judge angels. How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brothers go to law against brother and that before unbelievers? I want you to see this connection quickly before we think about think about some of these verses and, and how it applies to us <laughs> Paul is questioning the maturity of their church. This is why he asks the question, is there no one amongst you wise? Are you, is this really, do you feel like your only avenue is, is to go outside of the church, to go to the unrighteous instead of the righteous? Do you, do you really go to law against brothers and sisters? Is there really no one wise enough respected enough, mature enough in your gathering to be able to settle a dispute that the fact that they had lawsuits amongst brothers and sisters said something about the maturity of their church. Now let's think for a moment about the court system of their day because it affects the way that Paul is writing this. The court system in uh, the Roman Empire, first century Rome, where this is taking place in a city called Corinth, is different than the court system of our day. Now, I'm not defending the court system of our day. I am sure it has numerous problems, many of which we could discuss together. But our courts are pretty good compared to Roman courts. Roman courts were really only available to the wealthy. And Roman courts were almost exclusively corrupt. Bribery was rampant in the Roman court system. You see, it was an embarrassment for a wealthy person to lose a court case in Roman culture. So what did wealthy people in Rome do? They spent their money to ensure that they would not lose the case. So in nearly every instance, the wealthier a person was, the more likely the outcome would be in their favor So not only did they defraud one another, but they even defrauded the court system itself through corruption. And yet, in this corrupt environment, pagan environment, and and yes, Rome was a pagan culture, a culture in which false pagan worship was intricately tied to the rule in Rome and to Caesar himself, Paul gives instructions to the church to obey. To submit. Let's think about what he says in Romans chapter 13, writing to the church that that exists under the very seat of Caesar. He says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. That would be Caesar, that would be the governors, that would be the courts themselves. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God and avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience for because of this you also pay taxes for the authorities or ministers of God attending to this very thing pay to all what is owed to them taxes to whom taxes are owed revenue to whom revenue is owed respect to whom respect is owed honor to whom honor is owed you see by telling christians not to go to court against one another paul is not saying that we're not subject to rulers or even rules of the rulings of the court For surely we are. That we live in subjection to the the state and the sword that the state can bring against wrongdoers. And it is our responsibility to live in submission to them. Insofar as the law or courts or the government doesn't instruct us to disobey scripture, then, then we are bound to obey the law by Scripture. But what Paul is describing that's happening in the church is civil disagreements, grievances uh, amongst one another, and, and they're going outside of the church to deal with them. So he's not saying that somehow Christians are outside of the law. I just wanted to make that clear from Romans 13. We are certainly subject to rulers and authorities in this world including the courts of our day. But disagreements within the church should be settled within the church. And Paul makes an eschatological argument, meaning an end times argument. He makes an end times argument for settling disputes within the church. He says, don't you know? Don't you know that saints are going to one day judge the world? And if if they're one day going to judge the world, if the world is going to be judged one day by you, then shouldn't you be able to judge issues like this? And then he like compounds and he builds upon that. And he says, "Don't you know?" In verse three, do, do you not know that you're going to judge day? One, you're going to one day judge angels. If you're going to one day judge the world, and you're going to one day judge angels, how much more then should you judge simple matters of this life of disagreements against one another? Now. <laughs> If I don't quickly address it, somebody's going to come into me in the lobby, and they're going to ask me, so let me address it. I have no idea how we're going to judge angels. I know what angels we are going to judge, though. Jude, the brother of Jesus, mentions it in verse 6 of his brief letter to the church. He says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. I don't know what it's going to look like for us to sit in judgment over them, for the church of God to participate in the judgment seat of Christ, both of men and of angels. I don't know. But Paul's argument, we could get so focused on the how we're going to do that that we miss the why of Paul's argument. The why of Paul's argument is that the church is going to sit in this great seat of judgment one day. That at the end times, we're going to judge both the physical and spiritual realms. I don't know how that's going to happen. I just know that Scripture tells us it will. It will. So, if that is the ultimate reality for the people of God, how much more should we be able to deal with the disputes amongst brothers that are temporal? Now, Paul doesn't say you're not ever gonna have disputes against one another. This is just part of our sin nature and part of us unifying together in the gospel means there are going to be times that my sin affects you or that your sin affects me or that our sins affect one another and that we're going to sin against each other. This is really in a lot of ways a continuation from what we saw two weeks ago in 1 Corinthians 5 and what we considered in Matthew 18, that brothers and sisters in Christ are going to sin against brothers and sisters in Christ. It's going to happen. You, you stay around me long enough, just ask my wife. You stay around me long enough and my sin's going to affect you. And yours is going to affect me. And, and this is what we do. As, as, as people that are still working out our salvation. So Paul doesn't say you should never have grievances against one another. He just says you shouldn't go outside of here to deal with it. Because if you do, what you're ultimately saying is that there's no wisdom within the church. This very church that is going to one day judge both the world and the angels. And there should be wisdom in the church. The Apostle James in James chapter 3 writes about the wisdom of the church in this way. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works and the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and Every vile practice, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness and sown in peace by those who make peace. James is describing for us the kind of people that should exist in the church, that are well-respected, that have a wisdom not of this world, but a wisdom of Christ, that are able to be peacemakers between brothers and sisters. Now, I can preach this sermon. I'm preaching a text here. But I'm preaching it as the pastor of as a pastor of Nansman River Baptist Church, and here's what I'm in, incredibly grateful for: that there are wise men and women in this room who can help you settle disputes, who you could go to and say, "I." I'm having a struggle with a brother. Could, 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 you, could you help me? I'm having a struggle with another sister. Could, could you mediate this and, and bring your godly mature wisdom into this situation and help us to be restored to one another? A healthy church should have wise people who can s- settle disputes and A manner consistent with godly wisdom. Think about what Paul has already addressed in previous chapters. He's gone to great lengths to show that the wisdom of the world is actually foolishness. And that that true wisdom is wisdom that comes when we understand and believe the gospel of Jesus and it turns the world on its head. So church, why would we go to fool's? To settle disputes amongst those who are supposed to be wise. It says a lot about our church. If we have people who are able to settle disputes and that we are willing to listen to them. Number two, willingly suffering wrong for the sake of the gospel is an indication of the maturity of a believer. Look at verses 7 and 8. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded, but you yourself wrong and defraud even your own brothers? Verses 7 and 8 here of 1 Corinthians chapter 6 may be some of the most difficult in all of the New Testament. Not to understand, as they are exceedingly straightforward, but difficult to actually practice when we are the person who has been wronged. Now, Paul's not defending the person who is doing the wrong. In in truth, he is going to cast condemnation on them as well. This is why he ends verse 8. But you, yourselves, wrong and defraud that, that you're going to a court system that you know is rigged to defend an action that you already knew was wrong. This is what's kind of represented in that, that that they're just compounding wrong upon wrong, which is why he says this is already a defeat for you. But when we think about this in context of maturity of believers, the the question is, what, what is our spirit really like when we are wrong? Are we influenced by the world, by our sue-happy culture, that when we're wronged, our first instinct is, well, I'm going to sue them. I'm going to get even with them. I'm going to get retribution, and I'm going to demand justice, and I'm going to seek vengeance even against my brothers and sisters within the church. That's what was happening in Corinth. Oh, Lord, would you protect it from happening here in our church? So what do we do? What do we do if we were to be wronged in this way? Well, the first thing we do is that we trust the Lord. So this is is difficult, it is, but the first step is for us to recognize what God has said about himself as it relates to justice and retribution. In Romans chapter 12, Paul says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And that's a tough verse to apply, isn't it? As far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So the first thing that we do is we trust the Lord. Now, let me just stop for a minute. I'm trying to bring clarity into this, you know, a 21st century reality of this. For us. So I've already compared the difference between criminal and civil. Let me let me say something else here. Paul is not forbidding that Christians ever go to court. He's, he's not forbidding Christians ever seek justice within the justice system. That we're specifically talking about what's happening amongst Christians, and I think a good argument can be made that we're specifically talking about what's happening amongst Christians within a membership of a local church. But we still have to weigh, even outside of that, if we are seeking to right some kind of wrong vengefully. And so this would be my counsel. If you were to ever come to me and say, I'm having this issue, should I go to court? The question is a question of your heart. Are you seeking vengeance? Are you seeking to repay evil for evil? I'm just, can I I just illustrate it Clearly from my own life, my wife and I, a number of years ago, had to take someone else to court. We were renting a house to someone and they stopped paying rent and for months didn't pay rent. And the only way we could get them out of the house was to go to a court and say, this person is living in our house, what should we do? Our goal was not to be vengeful. Our goal was not to be spiteful. We ended up losing a lot of money through all of this and just allowed the Lord we said, Lord this is for you but but we had to do something about this person living in our home that we living in a home that we owned that would not leave and would not pay rent but it was a check on our hearts are we trying to be vengeful are we trying to be wrath or are we trying to avenge are we just seeking what is what's right so the first thing we do is we trust the Lord The second thing we do is we we obey scripture. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone would force you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, Jesus is not saying that the church, that Christians are expected to be doormats, that people just walk all over. So hear me, if you're in a relationship like this, you you have not only permission from scripture, but I think godly wisdom to do everything you can to remove yourself from that kind of relationship or situation where someone is constantly seeking to take advantage of your kindness in Christ. However, when we are wrong, We're not looking for vengeance or retribution. We're to be those who demonstrate Christ's likeness in all situations. We're to be those for the sake of the gospel who are willing to say, I am going to trust the Lord that he will in his timing bring about what is right and there is a level of maturity For Christians, when we are able to do this and to sleep at night, hear me, (laughs) we're able to sleep at night knowing that, that I don't have to go and try to make somebody pay for what they've done. That I can trust the Lord and knowing that he will bring good out of everything in his timing. Number three, radically transformed believers move away from the flesh and towards maturity in Christ. You may wonder when we were reading the text at the beginning, what in the world verses 9, 10, and 11 have to do with verses 1 through 8. Well, they are connected, which is why Paul begins this new paragraph by saying, or do you not know? So he's talking about who you once were and who you now are and how that should affect how you relate to one another. And he says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Then he lists 10 sins. There's only nine mentioned here. It's because one is combined, and I'll show you in a moment. Do you, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And as such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So there are 10 sins listed here. Uh, If you're paying attention, you've probably already noticed some of them, six to be exact, are repeats from the previous chapter. Paul has already listed six of these 10. The other three, really four, are adultery, homosexuality, and thieves, I say four when, it's, when it shows up as three because there are two different words used to describe homosexual behavior here in this passage that our translators, because of the way English works, combine into one. I'll be careful here. What's being described is both the active and passive participants in homosexuality. So what Paul is saying here is there's no excuse for any of these things, including the practice of homosexuality, which is such a large topic of discussion in our world today, even where people are wanting to make this say something, like really straining at gnats to make this say something that it is not saying. Hear me clearly. All forms of homosexuality are condemned in this passage and throughout the scripture of God. That, that these things are to be, these 10 things are to be taken together and we're going to recognize that people that practice these things, whether it's sexual immorality, adultery, homosexuality, whether they're thieves or greedy or drunkards or revilers or swindlers, that they will not, and he says at the beginning and at the end of the passage, inherit the kingdom of God. Now, writing on this passage, a, a uh, English pastor named David Pryor says this, Paul is not talking about isolated acts of unrighteousness but about a whole way of life pursued persistently by those who thus indicate that they would be aliens in the kingdom of truth and light. Now we read that list and we think, for at least for some of them, we think, yeah, these are the, the, the these represent our world. These represent the flesh. The, these represent those who would have nothing to do with the kingdom of God. But notice, Paul is connecting them to those who are suing one another. Because so many of these sins have to do with actually sinning against someone else. So many of these are interpersonal sins. We would call these second table sins. They're the, they're the second table of the Ten Commandments. They, they deal with, with our interpersonal relationships. So much of them do how we're sinning against one another, and he says you you can't sin against one another in these ways just consistently and and persistently and still claim to be a part of the kingdom of God because you have been radically transformed, and when you are radically transformed by the power of the, the Spirit of our God through faith in Jesus Christ, you are now something new. And that new thing that you are should act differently than what you used to be. Whether it's one of these sins of which some of these people were, and by the way, so were many gathered here, or whatever. Whoever, however you were defined before your life in Christ, you are now something new, which is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, for now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once were regarded christ According to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You were once something, but now, by God's grace, you are something else. And that something else doesn't just change your life. It changes the way that you interact with those who also have been changed by Christ. So 1 Corinthians 6 is far more it's about far more than just don't sue each other. This could have been a really short sermon, right? I could have got him and just said, look, church, don't sue each other. I don't know of any cases where we're suing each other. Let's go home early. But it's about far more than that. It's about allowing that new life in Christ to dictate how we interact with each other about moving from fleshly desires towards Christ-like desires in every aspect of our lives and of our interpersonal relationships. So what? We proclaim the reality of the gospel to one another and to the world by settling our conflicts in a manner worthy of Christ. I opened by telling you a story of two people who claim the name of Christ. I have no idea what happened to them after this. I sure would love to know. But I can tell you this. They did a disservice to the gospel that day. They defamed the name of Christ that day in front of many who did not believe. If they have not repented, they will be held accountable of that. And so how we interact with one another, particularly when we have been wronged, matters. It has eternal consequences because we proclaim the gospel in the way that we relate to one another. Yes, even when we are wronged. A moment ago, we considered Paul's words in 2 Corinthians five, sixteen, and 17. I'd like to keep reading now, picking up in verse 18. Remember what he has said. You are a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. He continues, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. So all those things he listed in 1 Corinthians 6, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Hear me, church, we preach the message of reconciliation. We call this the gospel, that God will... Forgive our sin because Jesus took the wrath of God in our place. And we proclaim this message of God, not just at Easter and not just at Christmas. We proclaim it by willingly being reconciled to one another. We proclaim it in our actions by forgiving one another. We proclaim it when we even say, I am willing to be wronged in this life, just as Christ was wronged in this life. When we forgive the sins of One another, we proclaim the gospel not just to each other, but to the world who is watching us. So, yes, it matters. It doesn't just matter that we don't sue each other. It matters how we talk to each other. It matters how we love each other. It matters how we encourage one another. It matters how we forgive one another. It matters how we bear the wrongs of one another. It matters how we bear the struggles of one another because we are reconciled together because together we have been reconciled to God and then He has entrusted to us a message of reconciliation. So let me just get really personal for you. I said, I don't know of any, like, egregious struggle that's happening in this room today. I don't know of any lawsuits that are happening against one another. But you may be sitting there going, I do. You may be incredibly mad at somebody in this room right now. Maybe it's your spouse sitting next to you. Sometimes that happens. Maybe it's a dear, an old friend who you feel has wronged you. Maybe it's someone because there are interconnected business relationships in this room. Maybe you feel like you've been defrauded in business. Can I tell you what your responsibility in Christ is today? Go and be reconciled to your brother and sister. Tonight we're going to gather again and we're, we're gonna, one of the things we're going to do is we're going to receive the Lord's Supper and there's specific instructions in Scripture, to be reconciled to our brothers and sisters before we come to the table. So you have a whole afternoon to do it. Be reconciled. Because in our personal reconciliation, we proclaim an eternal reconciliation in Christ. The way that we handle conflict (laughs) doesn't just matter between a man and, and his friend or a woman or, and a friend, it, it has great and far-reaching impacts even into eternity as we have been entrusted with the message of reconciliation. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, its goodness and its instruction, and even how it can convict us. We thank you God for entrusting to us, your church, the message of reconciliation. But that message falls on deaf ears when we don't live and demonstrate it well in how we are reconciled to one another. So, Father, if there are grievances, hardships, and wrongs that have been done between members of this church, I pray, God, that you, by the power of your Spirit, would reconcile brother and sister and husband and wife as a testimony of the gospel's impact in our lives. Thank you, God, for Jesus, who's reconciling the world to himself. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Church, would you stand with us as we sing?